good number of them have hung in with the wet weather. As Crawford hits a little pop towards short. Simmons, what a play, and the scoop at first gets him. Two out. You hadn't noticed, he's pretty good. Yeah. Good morning, and welcome to episode 406 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. Hello, Sam Miller. Probably the most significant baseball number currently standing, right? Yeah, it's a big one. I don't think there's any that is currently standing that is a bigger deal. Yeah. Yeah, this is a big one. Which is weird, because it's not like 406 is the record or anything. It's not even close to the record. Nope, it's just... I mean, the... In, in the 20 years before he hit 406, like, everybody was hitting 400. It, <laughs> like, at the time, like, in 1942, I don't think 406 would have seemed like a significant number at I all. I think it had been... Yeah, it had been the first in, like, a decade, maybe, I think, that someone yeah, had but, done it. But it wasn't unheard of, as it would be today. No. No, yeah. right. I mean, I wonder when it was. I guess the question is when. I wonder when it was that 406 became significant. Like, I doubt it was significant in 1960. Yeah, Ted Williams was still playing then. Um. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Is that is that significant? Uh, yeah. It seems more mythological now that he's not. Uh huh. Uh, so yeah, so maybe it was definitely a big deal in 1986. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. uh, so big show. We should have, uh, we could have actually made this a, a special show if we'd wanted to. We should have researched the history of when 406 became special. Yeah, I wonder. Actually, that would be interesting to look. You could look at, um, you could look up. Uh, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. You could, you could do it if you had access to it. Anyway, let's do some questions. <laughs> okay. 19, 1930 was the, the the last time somebody had done it. So it had uh-huh. been 11 years, and before that, it had been uh, four, five years before that. So. And 1930 was crazy high batting average year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but but 1941. Meanwhile, I mean, he didn't even win the MVP award. So mm-hmm. like, it, I'm certain it wasn't a big deal in 1941. I mean, it was a big deal, but it wasn't like uh, like 406 was. The point is just that 406 was not an iconic number yet. All right, so let's do some questions, okay. if you don't mind. I don't. Um, all right, Kyle asks, uh, the movie Fanboys ends with the gang sitting down in a theater to watch Star Wars Episode One for the first time. The main character turns to his friends and asks, what if this movie sucks? On the Braves preview, Ben stated that he's glad that the defense tracking system will be set up in Angleton Simmons' lifetime so we can preserve, quote, his quoting Ben. I'm quoting somebody quoting Ben to Ben. <laughs> so, quote, we can preserve whatever he does for posterity. My question Let's is... Take what it out the, of context. My question is, what if the data says Angleton Simmons sucks at fielding? Have you seen Fanboys? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what if the data says Angleton Simmons sucks at fielding? What would that mean? That's actually a really good question. What would it mean if it comes out and suggests that Angleton Simmons is a, I don't know, what can we say plus, uh, you know, plus one fielder? Would that be enough to shock us all? Yeah, I would. I would enjoy that almost as much as if it said he was as amazing as we think he is. Uh, Why would you enjoy that? You would take it at its at at face value, huh? Well, I'm assuming that we're accepting that the system is is correct. But if the what, system is just wrong, then that wouldn't be very exciting. Yeah. Well, um, what do you have? I mean, like, like all, I don't know how all you have to evaluate a system is whether the results 
make sense, but then in a weird that's like becomes a tautology, right? It, right? it makes sense because it confirms what we already know, and therefore we know what it says. Yeah, I, we are. Yeah, so it's hard what, to imagine how it, that could be because we have all watched Andrew and Simmons, and you did an article on some of his amazing plays, and and they seem objectively amazing. Um, yeah, but I mean, J.T. Snow seemed objectively amazing to me. As a, I mean, I've never seen anybody who was a better fielder than J.T. Snow when he was with the Giants, and and this was not considered controversial. He was he was a genius, and then the metrics came out, and it turns out he's like, eh, he's okay. And so it, we should be prepared for the possibility that there will be things that surprise us. And and the, the reason I think it's significant is that people will use the J.T. Snow example or they'll use the Omar Vizquel example or they'll use whatever example to, to say, right. well, this metric clearly is flawed because it doesn't pass the sniff test. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how low or I guess how high does Simmons' rating have to be for this system to pass the sniff test or – if he was negative 40, would you still take it on faith because the system is the system and you believe the system? Uh, I wouldn't take it on faith, but it seems like the nice thing about the system is that it spits out all of the specifics, so you would know why it was saying he was negative 40. Uh, it would sort be. of it does, but I mean, it sort of it does, but in a way it doesn't. It, it tells you the process, but it doesn't tell you the result. In, in a way, you know, the, yeah. the, well, it's not the, gonna... ni- the nice thing about the metrics that we have is at least they are counting a thing that ha- happened, right? They, right? they count outs. I mean, and... the, the system is not going to tell us who's good and who's not, right? It's just spitting right. out the data and then some analyst is going to use the data to, to compare to other players and say <laughs> that someone is such and such runs below average or wins below average. So I would be... I'd be very skeptical if someone said Simmons was not a good fielder, according to that data, and I would want to want to know why. Uh, Wait, so you, now you're saying you would be skeptical a minute ago? I'd you were definitely saying... be skeptical. I, I, I mean, if it were proven that he was not somehow, that would be fascinating. I'd love to know how our eyes could be so completely wrong. About I'd love him. to know. I'd love to know how you would envision ever proving anything, though. That's the <laughs> point. Is how do you prove it? If everything is in relation to to various metrics yeah there is no there is no i mean there is an objective truth but it can only be i mean all we know is what we can observe so Mm. how do you how do you prove it i don't know it would have to i mean if it if it somehow said that he does not run as fast as other shortstops and i don't know like maybe his positioning is really good but he doesn't actually have great range or something which seems crazy again because we're talking about andrelton simmons but uh I don't know. I can't imagine any system that makes sense saying that he's not great. But if there were some hidden secret thing that he's not doing that it would uncover, that would be that'd be interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I it's hard to believe. It's hard to envision that scenario playing out. But you Do could you... imagine it for some other fielder who we think is just kind of good, and then it turns out that he's not really that good. That will that will happen with someone. Yeah, certainly. That's what I mean. But Kyle didn't. I mean, there's a reason Kyle didn't ask about those. Right. You know, we we caveat all of our our defensive statements right now, but we don't feel the need to caveat Andrelton Simmons. And Mm -hmm. so so do you think that when this comes out, you will still put caveats in? I mean, there's this there's the I guess maybe there's the sample size. It takes a fielder doesn't really get as many contested chances as, you know, a hitter does in the same time span. So there will still be the problem of 
not getting enough chances necessarily for true talent to emerge. But yes. I guess I guess in a, in a way though, it might be the opposite, where now everything is process driven, and so it would be like swing rates, which stabilize extremely quickly. It might be the mm-hmm. case that you would know in like literally like five games, you might be yeah. able to tell. It should be ninety percent like, certainty. It should be like fastball velocity. Like velocity, exactly. Right. Yeah, it, exactly. So it'll be a, a person's velocity instead of the ball velocity. So all right. So going back to the question, will uh-huh. you caveat? Will you caveat your defensive? Statements? Uh, uh, I I'd be more confident in them much much more quickly. I mean, it. I would not caveat someone running really fast. Uh, I, that, I can't imagine any scenario in which that's a fluke. I mean, I guess you could have a guy who is hurt most of the time or has a lot of nagging injuries, and so he's not usually as fast as he was on that day, or maybe he doesn't give 100% effort all the time, but if a guy runs really fast, then he is a really fast runner, <laughs> or at least he has the capability to be. You're, you're not going to get some slow guy just putting up a really fast time out of nowhere. You know what I was thinking about when I read Russell's article about the system is that the questions that will arise, I think, that, that when, when we talked about whether this will actually introduce new questions or whether it will only settle them, mm-hmm. I think that, that it will tell you what happened and that will no longer be debatable. But I think that we'll have a lot of questions. The questions that will arise are questions of motive. Um, so when Russell talks about, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of future world, being able to to intuit a player's emotional state based on, you know, minute movements of his body. That's the sort of thing where it raises questions. And so when players take a less efficient, say, say a runner takes a less efficient route around the bases, Mm -hmm. um, the, the question will be, well, is efficiency truly efficiency? Or is there a reason he takes a slightly less efficient route? Is there a reason that, that that angle sets up you know, his, for whatever reason, that angle helps him uh, get home faster. Or is there there a reason why he takes a certain angle on fly balls? Because there's always the, um, when you're when you're chasing a fly ball, for instance, there are different factors at play. It's not, you're not merely trying to catch the ball. You might also be trying to set up to cut off the ball if you're not able to catch it, or to block it if you miss it, or to, to be ready to throw. And so there will be all sorts of different ways where the, uh, the data that describes what happens still might be open to some interpretation of why the, the the runner or fielder did that and whether it actually demonstrates a flaw in his game or whether it it um, uh, it is a kind of a added layer of design to the game that the system doesn't necessarily intuit. Mm-hmm. So that's that's I guess that's the answer to the question that we talked about last week. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, I liked that question, by the way. That's Me a good too. question. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so Matt asks two questions, and I want to a- answer both of them. They're totally different. Um, last March, I had an email exchange with a handful of BP staffers about the seasonality of pitcher injury risk. Specifically, I was asking about a friend's theory that if you get through spring training healthy, you have a pretty good shot at staying that way all year. Max did some digging through the DL database, and indeed, April had a way higher rate of attrition than all the other months of the season, especially for elbow injuries. Some of that is explained by carryovers, guys who had gotten hurt the previous year and just needed to be re-added to the roles of the disabled. But Doug and Corey both talked about very real issues of mechanical efficiency and shaking off the rust that could play a role in that phenomenon. And our conclusion was that, for myriad reasons, it really is likely that a team that enters the season with a healthy staff will keep it. 
If that's true, should we be factoring it into our predictions and projections for a season more than we do? Most people already prefer to pick a team without injured pitchers to one with injured pitchers, but maybe the gap should be even greater since the evidence seems to suggest that the former will stay relatively injury-free throughout the year. Also, do you think this is one reason teams tend to wait out the secondary pitching market more than the hitting one? Maybe teams have figured this out and would rather come to camp, see whether a pitching shortage crops up or not, and act accordingly rather than amassing depth that could be unneeded and expensive. Mm-hmm. I think I may have been on that email exchange, but it was a while ago, so I don't remember the details. Um, I, I mean, I guess if there's if there's something to it, I'd have to look at the numbers, but if it's if it's true that a higher percentage of pitching injuries occur early in the season... Uh, I guess that's something we should factor in if a team makes it past that gauntlet. You know, when we um, do our transaction analyses of trades uh, in July, for instance, uh, or, you know, there are certain projection systems that update as the year goes on. Yep. Um, you, you, it seems like this is something that should be taken into account then. Like, we sometimes will run Pakoda or we almost always will kind of mention what their forecast is for the rest of the year. And if you have a, a pitcher, you know, we, we treat sort of all pitchers as, as ticking time bombs. But if the bomb ticks much faster in March than it does in July, uh, it could be the case that trading for pitchers in July is actually very sensible. Like, again, if these numbers check out, if, the, if you know, what, what you guys talked about on that email chain uh, was significant, uh, it could be the case that... Um, uh, that a pitcher that is added in July is, you know, as safe or close to as safe or relatively as safe as hitters, and that we should really just sort of uh, discount the injury risk. Um, and you know, so maybe the team that is trading for pitchers in July is actually getting an uh, something of an under underrated or a, an undervalued asset. I mean, it, maybe yeah. if, maybe any time, maybe if any time you can get a pitcher in July rather than in in January, maybe you've already kind of won in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, worth looking into. Yeah, uh, your gut feeling. Do you think that it's true? I mean, you were on the. You don't remember exactly what the email was. But like, yeah. do you? Do, does it seem to to make sense? Or because uh, the carryover effect would be really big, right? I mean, there's right. a lot of guys who are going to start the season on the DL. Yeah, as I recall, it it wasn't established definitively one way or another whether it was statistically significant so i i don't know i would i would reserve judgment i could i mean i don't know i could talk myself into coming up with reasons why it would make sense that maybe you'd get hurt more often after a long layoff or something you know rush to get ready or you push yourself too fast too soon or something like that but it's just uh just a narrative unless we actually have the proof all right. Uh, so give me. I'm going to give you a, a hypothetical, and you get to choose who's going to be healthier for the next uh, for the next month. You've got, um, um, let's say, Clayton Kershaw starting on opening day, or you've got um, Clay Buckholtz who has uh, made it to June 1st healthy, or you've got uh, you've got Sean Markham who's made it to August 1st healthy. <laughs> who's who's more likely to hit the DL in the next uh, in the next 30 days? Uh, I, I would take, uh, I think Markham would always be the answer to that at any point in the year. Yeah. 
So I, it feels that way, certainly. So if, if that's true, if that's correct, then what we're talking about is, you know, maybe interesting on a macro level, but still, I mean, we all can spot an injured, you know, an injury prone pitchers, uh, history and mm. future, uh, without, you know, much trouble. So maybe it's just a, maybe it's just one of those, uh, I don't know. Maybe it, it makes a marginal difference. I don't know. It's interesting. Somebody should write about this, don't you think? Yeah. Maybe wait a minute. Us. So wait, why did you guys have this wonderful <laughs> email exchange and then nobody wrote about it? I don't remember. <laughs> That's like serious uh, research went into this. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna. I'll dig it up. Um, all right. Uh, so here's his second question, and it's gonna be our baseballreference.com play index, play index, play indexing of the week. I think like we should have some sort of audio drop for this, some kind of intro sound. It should be a, uh, you know what it should be? It should be like uh, archived footage from like a 19, early 1990s movie where a man is staring at like a green computer screen and frantically <laughs> hacking into like the <laughs> Pentagon or something. Yeah. <laughs> like it should be, definitely it should be something from the net. <laughs> Yeah. Do you have that? Can you can you pull that up? <laughs> I don't know whether it would come through on an audio-only show. All right. Uh, so his question is, Ryan Webb has finished 74 of his 266 career games, but he has zero saves. That seems very strange to me in the modern era of bullpen usage. Play index request. Uh, what's the record for games finished, let's say, since 1990 without a save? I imagine it blows Webb away, but I'm interested. And this is a cute question, but I think it's also somewhat of a significant one um, because the the role that a pitcher is used in tells you a lot about him. And um, in a lot of ways, it, in a lot of ways, the the pitcher's role doesn't. I don't know. In a lot of ways, the way that we view a pitcher or the way the league views a pitcher doesn't seem to change throughout his career. And so. Um, I don't know, as you'll see when I start getting into this. But um, to answer this question, I first need to find where I wrote the answer to this question. All right, yes. So to find the answer to this question, I went to um, the Play Index Pitcher Season uh, uh, section, and I searched since 19... I actually went to 1988, because um, that's when the sort of save save era begins in my mind. Um, and I searched for uh, careers, mm -hmm. and I looked for uh, pitchers with zero saves, zero career saves, mm -hmm. and uh, then I sorted by games finished. It's the easiest. It's the easiest play index that we've done so far. Very easy. And um, the answer is actually uh, Matt was wrong. He, Webb is not very far behind the leader. Mm. Webb has 74. The leader is actually only at 82. And that, so that's Matt Albers. And so Webb is actually number two all time. Matt has discovered an actual real life phenomenon in real time. Mm. Webb is, is chasing Albers in a sense. <laughs> He's very close to, uh, to, to, to catching him. But the, the, you know, the weird thing about any uh, achievement that requires a, a career, career total of zero is, as we've talked about, it can disappear in a flash, right? Like Ben Revere has the most played appearances without a home run. Mm -hmm. Right now, but you know, in April fifteenth, he won't. He he might not. It's very easy that he could just all that hard work just goes down the drain. So, if Albers or or Webb gets a save, then all of a sudden they're not on the list at all. So that made me think. Well, Matt's probably right. 
that even though Webb is currently number two and Albers is currently number one, there have probably been a number of pitchers who have reached higher save list games finished heights uh, and just eventually got a save and uh, so fell off the leaderboard. So this I, is a slightly more complex play index search. This time I went to the streak streak finders uh, section for pitchers, and I looked for players who had the longest streak of games to start their careers pitching out of relief uh, uh, without a save. So if, if you start a game, it doesn't end your streak. It just doesn't count against your streak. But if you save a game, it ends your streak. So I lo- went back to 1990, and so I looked for the longest streaks to start a career without a save, uh, and then I looked at all those pitchers' games finished totals, which display in the results, and uh, sorted by games finished. And uh, Albers is still number one. Hmm. Believe it or not, nobody has ever has ever been higher in this regard than Albers is currently. Um, so in fact, uh, what Webb and Albers is doing is very significant. Um, Webb does slip down to number three at 74. Clay Meredith got to 76 before he, he got a save. Um, there's a few other pitchers who were very recently very close to this record or whatever you want to call it. Jesse Chavez was at 72. And then he got one of those four-inning fluke saves in July this year. So mm-hmm. he's off. Joe Smith was making quite a run. He was at 66, and he finally got his first save last April. Um, and so what I was saying about how it seems like our opinions don't really change or the way that the league views guys doesn't really change, um, very, very few – there are – sorry, let me back up. There are 99 players who have had a streak of 55 uh, – sorry, 55 – of 15 or more. So 15 is pretty low. Uh, very few – players have had a streak, um, a saveless streak with at least 15 games. Um, and so of those 99, really only like maybe three-ish turned out to be closers. So these mm-hmm. are guys who were closing a lot of, who were finishing a lot of games, who were in the league for a long time, but weren't seen as closers. And they almost never do become seen as closers. The The most famous are Jason Grilly, who is mm-hmm. kind of famously didn't become a closer until he was like 34 and totally reborn. Um, and that didn't happen immediately either. Um, last year was his first year as a closer after a couple of dominating seasons. Uh, Ryan Franklin, who was, uh, never really considered a closer, but, uh, did, you know, had a couple years and, uh, Heath Bell, who, um, is probably the great success story out of these 19. Mm-hmm. Um, you do have a lot of guys on the list who were, who were really good for a sustained period of time. Uh, like Scott Linebrink was really good for a while, and Justin Spire made a lot of money, and Julian Tavares, but uh, didn't become closers. Albers seems to be in danger of losing his spot this year because he's in a bullpen where like nine guys could get saves. Um, yeah, I was going to say that Webb has a decent shot. Webb has some shot. He's he's clearly not the closer right now. No. And but the closer is not is not a closer. The closer, closer Darren O'Day is, is Hunter. Is the is it Darren O'Day? Is it Hunter? I, I, think, I think it's, it's Hunter. Oh, okay. Well, either way, it's not a guy who has uh, any sort of sheen that you have to scrub through right. to get the job. So Webb could do it. Webb doesn't really strike anybody out though, and he's not. No. So so it makes sense that he wouldn't. And he's um, been a big platoon split guy in the past. I think not so much last year, but uh, yeah. Not that's the greatest right. out pitch against lefties, and so that's another thing working against him. You want your closer to be someone who can get people out on both sides, but um, but I don't know. Feeling a feeling a Ryan Webb save this year. So that would put uh, actually I don't know who that would put in the uh, in the driver's seat, 
but um, if he and Webb, if he and Albert's both going to say of his 74, uh, 60 came in losing games. Mm-hmm. Uh, only 14 then came in winning games. I think five of them were games where he was the winning pitcher and the others were blowouts. The closest game he's ever closed was uh, when his team won by four. Um, and so there's, of course, a flip side to this. Uh, if if Webb is kind of the if Webb and Albers are sort of the best or like I don't know the the least closery pitchers in history like the like nobody has ever been less closery than them in mm-hmm. a way um, who are the most closery pitchers so for this I wanted to see who had the highest percentage of games he pitched in that he finished so mm-hmm. uh, like for instance Mariano Rivera would have a year where he came into sixty games and you know, won four of them and blew three of them and saved 44 of them. And so like 56 of his games, he, he finished. And the only ones he didn't would be like an extra inning game or a game that he, you know, blew somehow and somebody had to relieve him. Mm-hmm. Um, so who do you think, uh, does any, does any name pop up at you as the, uh, and I'll tell you right now, Rivera, not number one, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Cause he had, you know, a full year plus where he didn't close. Uh, uh... Like- Rivera's Rivera's at eighty five percent, and nobody has ever topped ninety. Hmm. So, do you want to guess? There's four guys ahead of Rivera. I was gonna guess Wagner, because he was like uh, a closer right away, pretty much. But sounds like not. Wagner's uh, number eleven. Hmm. There's fourteen guys who are over eighty percent. So fourteen are be- be- between eighty and ninety. Um, and so Wagner is at eighty two percent. Rivera's at eighty five percent. Just surprising. I don't think Wagner was a closer immediately. Wagner was was explicitly not a closer immediately. Mm, you got looking. You got got saves his rookie year. Huh? Maybe I'm thinking of uh, Lidge and Dotel because oh. they were always behind Wagner. Yeah. So um, yeah, but Wagner only saved twenty. Yeah, he saved nine his first year, twenty three his second. Yeah. yeah. Um, eh. Eh. Uh, wow. Do you remember Wagner's? Uh, 2009 season where he saved no games uh no the year he, that he got he traded to, barely, the, to the red sox barely pitched 17 17 games no saves okay so anyway you have not you have not guessed it take two more guesses uh papelbon no that was that was my guess and papelbon yeah. is number three ah okay well i got one in the group um huh uh i don't know give give them to me all right, so number uh, number I lost it. Number one is uh, Kaz Sasaki. <laughs> Never would have gotten that. <laughs> no, you wouldn't, would you? Eighty-eight <laughs> percent Kaz Sasaki. Uh, number two is Brian Harvey. Although I'm double checking, it's conceivable that yeah, Brian Harvey is actually on there. I think because I set the parameters to get rid of his first couple years, and uh, you know because he, he predates 1990 so throw out harvey so everything i said subtract one from every number i've said today okay. so forget harvey number two is papelbon and number three billy koch mm. shocking isn't that shocking uh i don't know you already raised the bar for shocking with sasaki number one so um, it is but at least it makes sense as soon as yeah. you hear sasaki you know oh yeah well of course he came in he was a veteran he closed yeah. for three years and then he disappeared into the ether but Billy Koch, man. Yeah, but I don't know. He's kind of – he feels like a manufactured closer, right? That was the whole story with him. Like they just made him into a closer and then – But he was an old man when they did that, right? Uh, yeah, I guess – well, he was 
in his later 20s, I guess, when he was with Oakland. Um, yeah, he was – oh, yeah, no, he – wow. So Oakland uh, – actually, Oakland got – I didn't realize this. Oakland got him in his fourth year. Yeah. I had, I had no idea. He, he'd actually been a closer for three years before that. I thought that they found Koch uh, doing, you know, set-up work in AAA or something. Yeah, made that's, him and that's what I was him, but thinking it's, too. I think – uh, it's I think not that at all. We are – I think we're thinking of Keith Folk. Maybe. Yeah, well, Keith Falk, yeah, the way you are, sort yeah. of. But I think that uh, I think Keith Falk, yeah, uh, Keith Falk was just coming off a bad year, uh-huh. so they, they they re he he had been a closer too. They saved him mm. for in in the one year they had him. All right, so that's it. Play index. Yeah. Um, any uh, anything you want to say about play index? Our favorite thing. <laughs> um, well, people should subscribe to it. We appreciate that some of you have have sent us requests for play index searches, but uh, we'd prefer that you subscribe yourself and run the play index search yourself uh, and use the the coupon code BP to get the $6 discount on the one year subscription uh, with the the money back guarantee and new features being added all the time. All right, um, so this is actually gonna be the last uh, question. Um, uh, This comes from Matthew who asks a hypothetical, uh, which would you rather have a team where you could choose? uh, Well, okay. So basically the question is, would you rather have uh, an elite pitching staff, but replacement level position players or elite hitters, but replacement level pitching Uh, specifically a team where you could choose whoever you want on your pitching staff, but could only have replacement level position players, or you could choose the best offensive players at each position, but have replacement level pitching, which team would win more games? I actually think I know the answer to this because I think I just read it, but maybe not. Do you do you know the answer to this? Um, no. I I was gonna say something about. I mean, wouldn't you rather have the people you could be more confident would stay healthy? Oh, that's a good. That's a good. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, as we all know in fantasy, uh, the only bad strategy is drafting pitchers early. Yeah. So in that sense, yes. And yet, pitchers get paid just as much as hitters. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're only talking about, especially if we're only talking about one year, then pitchers definitely get paid as yeah. much as hitters. Um, but uh, I think Dan wrote about this. Was it Dan or was it Mike Fast? Some one of one of them wrote about this in the in extra innings, the book. Uh, Dan Turkenkopf, uh in the Baseball Prospectus book, Extra Innings, two years ago. And the question was, is a run gained mm. more valuable than a run saved? Right. And um, that was not – I don't think that was the, the, the main thrust of the article. Mm-hmm. But the first couple pages addressed the question uh, using the Pythagorean records. And um, the way it works, as I recall, is that if you're a good team, you want to take a run off. If you're a good team uh, – even if, if you're a good team with great hitting, then you would rather improve your defense. If you're a good team with great pitching, you would rather improve your defense. Defense here meaning run suppression. If you're a bad team, no matter, no matter uh, how you're bad, if you're bad, you want to add offense. Um, and so if, if we're assuming that a team where you could choose whoever you want for half your team and then replacement level for the other, I would imagine that that's a, a pretty good team either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so in that in that case, you would you would want to you would want to start taking off runs, 
mm-hmm. which would mean that you would want to have the the better pitching staff. If you're a good team, you want to have a better pitching staff. However, as you say, having a better pitching staff does not necessarily translate to uh, pres- you know to preserving uh, protecting to suppressing. Wow, third try, <laughs> not even close to the first two. Suppressing more runs because they could get hurt and they could just be terrible. The other thing, though, is that um, if you have good pitching, they can't do anything for your hitters. Whereas if you have very, if you have great position players mm. and they're chosen partly for their defense, they actually can help the pitchers. That's so true. to me, to me, what you said about the injuries and the way that positions interact with each other, both of those suggest that you would rather have the hitters. So even though a run saved is more valuable to a good team than a run added, I think I'm still going with choose the position players. Okay. Settled. All right. Uh, I am actually in Arizona at the Sabre Analytics Conference, and some of you listening are probably also here. Uh, Some of you have said hello already on the first day today, but if you have not yet and would care to, please do if you see me around. Um, Please send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild, and please rate and review us and subscribe to us on iTunes. And that's it for this week. So we'll be back with more team preview shows on Monday. And to play us out, I have the first track from the upcoming album by The Baseball Project. Uh, if you don't know The Baseball Project, you should. It's a super group composed of a couple members of REM, Peter Buck, Mike Mills, uh, Scott McCoy from The Minus Five. Uh, they have put out two albums already. Their third album, called Third, comes out on March 25th. All of their songs are about baseball. They're also just good songs, and they were nice enough to send me an advanced copy of the album, which I am listening to and enjoying. So here is the first track from Third, called Stats. Starting. 383.